Out of the box. Meet people through their music. With Heidi Pet on FBI 94.5. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. Hey, a big thanks to Stephen Ferris. He's been hanging out with you for the last couple of hours. The last song that he played for you was a new one from Joyride. You can look it up, fbiradio.com. Go to the Programs and Playlists page and you can find info about all the songs that he played as well as links to a couple of things that were on his program. Right now, it's time to get to know somebody new. This week, I've got Chris Graham. Now, he started out at the Sydney Morning Herald as a copyboy and has since gone on to a Walkley Award-winning career in journalism that includes founding publications like the National Indigenous Times and Tracker magazine. He's described his career highlight as having his home and office raided by the Australian Federal Police, which is an interesting career highlight. Um, And you've said before, Chris, that your job is essentially explaining to white Australians that maybe we're not the master race. Yeah, that's a... (laughs) That's a great way to put it. I, now, I put it that way. So. <laughs> which has been no contentious, which is something that I would like to get to a little bit later. But you were saying before that you grew up in quite a, a musical household. You were all playing instruments and everything. It was an unusual musical household. It was. It was a very classical slash jazz musical household. I was in a brass band, the <laughs> Bankstown City Brass Band with my three brothers. And we were in a, uh, the Bankstown City Concert Band before that and the Bankstown City Boys Choir before that. You guys so. were definitely the cool kids at school. I don't think we were, no. Are you being facetious? (laughs) Maybe a little bit. I don't know. I just know that where I grew up that, you know, playing the clarinet and the school band, which is what I did, was just like, (laughs) it was not the coolest thing that you could choose to do. No, let's put it this way. I, uh, I was small, I had glasses and I was in all the top classes. So I was the subject of some bullying when I was smaller and playing in a brass band, I don't think added to the image. No, you needed to <laughs> pick up like the drums or. Well, know. I was a drummer, uh, but I still had to wear that green uniform with the epaulets and the tailored suit. So I looked like a complete nerkwezel and was treated <laughs> appropriately. That, that's a term I haven't heard before. Yeah, it's it's code for nerd. Nerd. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Um, so you've brought in a, a really big range of music to play for us on the show today. What have we got to look forward to? I did. I, this was very very difficult. Uh, Getting it down to 10 or 12 songs was torture, but I've got uh, Dropkick Murphys, which is one of my favourite bands of all time, and saw them live for the first time this year, and a bit of Xavier Rudd and some Cat Empire, and a band called The Titters, which is, uh, they're no longer around, but they're a group of Aboriginal women from Victoria, and they sing a song, uh, which we'll get to, uh, which is one of my, I, I play it every January 26th with my middle finger in the air. <laughs> Good. Let's have a listen to something from the Dropkick Murphys. You've brought in a song called I'm Shipping Up to Boston. Is there a reason that you chose this one? Oh, it, probably because it's their most iconic song. My favourite Murphy song is called Tessie about the Boston Red Sox, but they played this uh, at the Blues Fest early this year and uh, I nearly lost it <laughs> with excitement. Let's have a listen to it now.
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. My name is Heidi Pat, and this week I'm joined by Chris Graham. Now, Chris, I have to admit that I haven't really listened to much Celtic punk before in my life. <laughs> not many people have. It's not the strongest selling genre on the, on the top 40 charts. Now, that was the Dropkick Murphys, and you were just saying you were really, really excited you got to see them at Blues Fest this year. At Blues Fest, yeah. Um, I've loved them for quite a while, and they sing a song, as I said, called Tessie, which is one of my favourite songs. I used to uh, I play ice hockey, and I used to practice to Tessie all the time. But uh, I got to see them at the Blues Fest in just, Byron this Sorry, year. I'm just going to interrupt. I just have this image of, like, you know in, in American films, and there's always, like, <laughs> the ice hockey kind of montage. Yeah, that's it. I'm imagining that your ice hockey montage of you just, like, getting hit with pucks and falling over and getting in fights <laughs> is too... Celtic punk. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of makes sense. They're from New York, Massachusetts, which is the home of the mighty New York Rangers. So, but Tessie's about the Boston Red Sox and their their final, finally winning the World Series. But I, I saw them live with my um, partner Ange at the Blues Fest in um, Byron this year. And while we were in the crowd, they'd played shipping up to Boston, and by that stage, I was nearly beside myself. And um, there was a rumour going around Blues Fest that Bruce Springsteen was going to turn up because there was this gap, people thought, in the schedule and everybody thought there'd be a surprise guest and Bruce Springsteen was in the country and, and the lead singer of the Dropkick Murphys had toured with uh, Springsteen. So he told the audience, uh, you know, we've toured with Springsteen and blah, 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 blah. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Bruce Springsteen. And I grabbed Ange. I nearly lost my shit, you know. I was so excited. And there was this big log pause and then uh, the, the band sort of turned around and looked to the back of the stage and then the singer turned to the front and said, we do that at every gig and he never walks out. <laughs> and to say I was gutted. I mean, it was very funny, but it was also quite cruel. It was very cruel. <laughs> it was. I mean, Bruce Springsteen and the Dropkick Murphys, it would have been... I would have. They would have carried me away in a stretcher, I think. <laughs> it's always funny that, yeah, sort of at music festivals or even before the lineup comes out and everyone's kind of planning out, like, who's going to be in Australia and who the lineup's yeah. going to be. I know with Splendor, everyone looks at the Fuji Rock lineup, um, which is a festival in Japan, and they yeah. kind of, like, try and figure it out. And everyone's walking around and everyone's got their little plans, and it's almost this competitive thing. Yeah. I think I'm going to the Blues Fest again this year, and I dare say there will be a rumour sweeping the the festival that, you know, somebody who's not coming will come. I think it happens every year. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's an amazing lineup this year anyway. Uh, so I'm quite looking forward to it. Now, you're probably best known as being the, the founding and former editor of the National Indigenous Times and mm. Tracker magazine, which was a magazine of the Aboriginal Land Council. Why did you found those two publications? I, f I founded NIT uh, because I'd, I'd started working in journalism in the bush and there were a lot of blackfellas out in the bush and I formed a lot of good relationships with Aboriginal people and uh, eventually in Batemans Bay, while I was editing some papers down there, a, a local blackfella came and asked if we wanted to start a national Aboriginal paper. I thought he was mad, but he kept coming back and in the end we did launch uh, NIT and I had a very quite a conservative view at the time. I was very influenced by Noel Pearson and I thought he had all the answers and then within a year or so uh, of working in Aboriginal affairs, I soon realised that the truth was something else and that uh, there were much bigger problems. Because for people who aren't familiar with the, I suppose, the relationships between different prominent Indigenous people, Noel mm. Pearson is a very contentious figure. Oh, he's, hate, look, let's put it frankly, he's hated by a lot of Aboriginal people. He's loved by white Australia, but that really does describe the gap quite well. I think people talk about close the gap. The gap that they're trying to close is often the wrong one. The, there's this huge gulf between the aspirations of Aboriginal people and the aspirations for Aboriginal people by white people. 
uh, and that and so my views changed a lot over the last ten years or so. So you're saying um, we founded that publication. Who was involved in the original team? Owen Carriage, who founded the Curry Mail, was uh, one of the. It was his idea. Um, my partner at the time, Jackie Newbury, uh, myself, and a gentleman called John Rosethorn and Beverly Weiner. We were the sort of five, and Tamara Giles, who is the wife of Adam Giles, the current Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. So it was a very eclectic mix of people. And you worked on the publication uh, from 2002 until 2009? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was the editor uh, until 2010, at the end of 2009, basically. Uh, basically, I'd just outgrown, not the paper, but I just I wanted to get back to writing and not editing. I, I've never been, I think I edit well, but I'm not a natural, I don't like dealing with staffing issues and what have you. I prefer just to be on the road and writing stories, uh, and that's fundamentally where I am now. Because you're working as a, a freelancer now, but it seems that you came to this job through a path that's not really available anymore. You left school in year 10. Yeah, yeah left in year 10. Hated school. Uh, was, as I said, bullied mercilessly. I was very small, and now, as you can see, I'm quite large. I just kept growing. I don't know why. Uh, but, uh, yeah, left in year 10, got a job as a copy boy at the Sydney Morning Herald, which is a... I don't even know if they still have copy boys, but we were the guys who used to get lunch for the journos, basically, and run copy all over the place. Uh, and then I ended up jagging a cadetship uh, at a magazine company. Uh, I was writing about babies and breastfeeding for the first four years of my cadetship and gardening. And so I have a love of a natural love of hydroponics. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, and and uh, from there I went into regional journalism and then ended up in Aboriginal affairs, which is where I've been for the last decade or so. Something that I do want to have a conversation with you about just after this is your position as a white Australian who is speaking out about and advocating for Aboriginal rights because I imagine mm. that that sometimes becomes a bone of contention. It's very contentious. That's something that we're <laughs> going to discuss in a minute. But you've brought in a song by Eddie Vedder called Rise. Yes. This is Eddie Vedder's uh, a guy I'd change teams for, I think. He's, he's an absolute... Uh, he's obviously a guru. He was the lead singer of Pearl Jam. But this song, Rise, is from the soundtrack to a movie called Into the Wild, which was written by a guy called John Krakow, my favourite author. And Into the Wild is a story about a, a guy called Chris McCandless, who was this young, idealistic American who at about, I think, 23 years of age, finished his uni degree, gave away all his money, which was 20-something thousand dollars, and basically hit the road for a few years. And he ended up uh, dying in the Alaskan wilderness uh, in quite tragic circumstances. Well, I remember watching the first half of that movie and being like, this is an excellent idea. Yeah. Everybody should drop out of their oh, yeah. life and just go and hang out in the wilderness and do their own thing for a while. And then he went and died. Yeah. Like, maybe it's not <laughs> Turns out he's not idea. very good. Yeah, he wasn't very good at living in the wild. <laughs> but the idea was right. Uh, and look, there's a lot of appeal uh, for me personally. I wouldn't do what Chris McCandless did to his family, which was ultimately very cruel. But uh, I do, a big part of me understands why he just wants to piss off to the bush. And, and I get to bugger off to the bush all the time, uh, but I do come back. Yeah, and, and I'm always in mobile phone Roughly coverage, so. know where you are. Yeah, more or less. Let's have a listen to this one by Eddie Vedder. You're listening to Out of the Box, and this week we've got Chris Graham programming all the tunes. Such is the way of the world You can never know Just what
Beautiful folky tune from Eddie Vedder. It's called Rise. It was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today. His name is Chris Graham. And we've just heard a little bit about kind of how you, you got into journalism mm. and how you developed this particular interest and specialty of yours in Aboriginal affairs. Um, and yeah, I was really, really interested in whether or not it matters that you're a white fellow covering Indigenous issues. It does. It's... Uh Race is a big issue in this country, and it seems no matter where you end up, it's a big issue, even if you're a white fella that advocates for black interests. I had a a battle on Twitter not all that long ago about my race. Uh, it was really about someone else, and I weighed in in their defence, and, and uh, some black fellas who I know weren't very happy about it. And uh, it's, it's a real trap. You've got to understand your place as a white fella in Aboriginal affairs. And I tend to, I tend to restrict... 99.9% of my reporting to explaining to white people how bad white people are and how bad our policies are and the effects we've had on First Nations people. I'm very infrequently do I express a view about what I think Aboriginal people should think. Very, I could count on one hand the number of times I've done it in 10 years. Something that I, I wanted to bring up to you, and I suppose an example of where this has maybe been a problem, um, the whole Delta Goodrum thinking that blackface oh. is hilarious <laughs> thing, like, and the whole, well, most of the nation collectively just went, come on, Delta. Like, yeah. Just, How hard is it? But I think her specialty on the voice was just like... Bimbo. Saying, well, I wasn't going to say <laughs> that one, but just like saying really kind of stupid out of context things and yeah. sometimes those stupid out of context things were exceptionally racist things. I thought her greatest con- contribution to the show was just sitting um, cross-legged with no shoes on in the chair and looking like a hippie. I thought it was awesome. <laughs> I must confess, I never actually really watched The Voice. I just read the I've seen pedestrian it once, yeah. live blog obsessively. I don't know if you've, if you've ever had the pleasure of reading that, but they just got one now. of their writers to have a glass of wine and live blog exactly her thoughts on what was going on and it was like, oh, sorry I missed that bit because I was reheating my dinner and yeah, like was, that has some appeal. It was great. But basically, Mia Friedman came out and defending Goodrum. And you've written that people like Friedman will never understand what it feels like to be ground down every day by insensitive white people doing insensitive white things. And the question that I want to put to you is, how is it that you do? Well, look, the, the broader context of that article is, is me trying to explain uh, how Aboriginal people tell me they feel. Uh, and and when I was talking about Mia Friedman, I was talking about me as well. That white people, we will never understand what it feels like. I have a I have a 
a very ironic background because I was a, a, a foster kid and an adopted kid and didn't know my family until 2007. Went and found my family after four or five, oh, six years of doing, or four or five years of doing National Indigenous Times. Turns out my father married an Aboriginal woman and I have Aboriginal brothers and sisters. I found my mother who has Māori um, heritage. So I... I I don't know why I was able to identify easily as easily as I do with Aboriginal people or relate to them the way I do. Um, I, I think it's part nurture, part nature. But um, I just, I don't think, and I know I will never truly understand what it means to be to have lost your land and to uh, be treated the way Aboriginal people are still treated to this day. Um, but the difference between me and Mia Friedman is I'm aware of that. Mia Friedman apparently isn't. Because she ma- she makes statements like, you know, it's just a joke or what's the problem or, you know, this is not important, we need to get over it. It is important because uh, if you want to know what's important, ask Aboriginal people what's important and they will tell you that blackface is unacceptable and it shouldn't be done. And if we're the sort of nation that just shrugs that off and says, well, that's your problem, well, that speaks some volumes about us as a nation, I think. I think perhaps the one thing that people do have in common with you on this is disliking Mia Friedman. It's very popular on the internet to hate Mia Friedman. <laughs> well, I hadn't even heard of her until this article. I, I'm, if it's not Aboriginal Affairs, and, and I don't own a television, so if it's not Aboriginal Affairs, uh, I don't really know much about it. I, I heard the other day about twerking. Was it, is it twerking? Is that what they call it? <laughs> this is, Everyone's doing it. Yeah. I still don't know it. what it is, but I know that it's controversial. But that's about the depth of my current affairs knowledge. Uh, if look- it's Honestly, yeah. I really the the debate around twer- well, aside from there is that the racial debate with Miley Cyrus, but that's that's a whole oh, can of worms that we're not going <laughs> to open about appropriation of, of black culture. But that's that's uh, aside. But yeah, twerking is a thing that everyone's doing. Clive Palmer loves it. Clive Palmer loves it. it. Oh my god! Loves, well, it must be bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Um, now, look, something that I want to ask you about after this, we're going to have a listen to something else you brought in, but I want to talk to you about that career highlight. Having the Australian oh, Federal the, Police raid your house. The wallopers on my doorstep. <laughs> I had, um, we're talking about that now. No, let's, let's have oh, a listen okay. to a song. Let's, let's save that one because I feel like it's going to be a good story. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, now, what are we going to listen to next? Uh, look, we'll play, I'll, I'll put my partner out of a misery. Uh, we'll play a song called Angela. Um, it's by Missy Higgins. I'm not a huge Missy Higgins fan. I, I don't dislike her. I don't love her. But this song uh, describes my partner, Angela, um, to a T. Like, I, I'm sure Missy Higgins must know Angela and she's written this song. <laughs> and if she doesn't, it's been divined or something. But uh, I love the song because uh, I, I, there's another song called Angela, which I like, by Archie Roach. And I used to listen to it when I laid out the National Indigenous Times. And I was going to put that on the list, but then I thought, well, this one better reflects the Angela I know and love. So, so it's not just the name? It couldn't be switched in with the Rolling Stones? No, absolutely. No. Well, Angie, we sing quite a bit as well, usually when we've had a few drinks. This one's not a drinking song. This one's a kind of cautionary tale. Let's have a listen to it right now. Yeah. 
a song called Angela, which Chris Graham, my guest on Out of the Box Day, you're, you're sending that one out to your partner. I am, yeah. She's, it's very appropriate because, I mean, the word dangerous is in there, which describes Ange very well. She's uh, basically spends most of her time no, being naughty. She's just very <laughs> poorly behaved <laughs> in a very cute way. She's a very, very good photographer and a great mum, but she's also can't help but be uh, recalcitrant. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a domineering male sort of way. She's just fundamentally naughty most of the time. That's, I, I don't think I've ever heard of someone, an adult, described as fundamentally naughty. Yeah, no, Angie is, and apparently has been all her life, her parents tell me. <laughs> in a very cute way, I emphasise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thankfully, I'm not going home tonight. I'm heading to Armadale, so I won't have to explain so this in fine. too much detail. You're hitting the road. It's yeah. good. Um, now, look, speaking of perhaps dangerous and people doing things that they're not supposed to, let's talk about that career highlight of yours oh, the that got you into quite a lot of trouble. It did. Look, I, was, I remember it like it was yesterday. In fact, uh, next week it's nine years since it happened. It happened on November 11, Remembrance Day 2004. Um, Parliament House call it the Remembrance Day Raids. And I had been publishing, or the National Indigenous Times had been publishing a series of stories based on leaked federal cabinet documents. And leaked federal cabinet documents are very hard to come by. You know, they're very highly protected. So you, I've seen cabinet documents twice in my career, and this is on both these occasions. So we'd been publishing them, and next thing I know I get a knock on the door. Just quickly, what were those documents? What was oh, in them? Look, they, it's very complicated, but basically they exposed... The, the Howard government was saying it needed to abolish ATSIC because the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission because it was corrupt. It, ATSIC wasn't corrupt. ATSIC had just had nine unqualified audits in nine years. Uh, the, the advice we had been leaked showed that ATSIC was about to launch a High Court challenge to the federal government on a particular policy issue, and the federal government's advice was that uh, ATSIC would win. And that would be, A, extremely embarrassing for the government and, B, cause quite a big disruption to their policy. So they needed to abolish the litigant, basically, and that's a large part of the reason why they moved as quickly as they did. Uh, and that's not contested. It's in these documents. But that's not the public story that we all still know and love, which is ATSIC was corrupt. But anyway, we were publishing the stories, and the next thing I know at about 8.30 in the morning, there's a knock on my door at home, and there's these two men in clearly very cheap suits standing on my doorstep and I initially thought they were real estate agents because their suits were so cheap but and I thought I was quite pissed off because I thought what are you doing at 8 30 trying to get me to sell my house not even mine it's a rental but as soon as I opened the door uh, it became apparent they were cops because they whipped out the badges so I actually had I he tried to come in and I pushed him back out the door because uh, I was very unprepared <laughs> Well, sort of unprepared. We'd actually copied all the documents and stored them off the premises in case we got raided by the federal police. That's something you naturally do as a journalist, but never expecting it will actually happen. It's just us, our way of feeling important and self-dramatic. <laughs> uh, but as it turned out, it was the right thing to do because they came in. Uh, there was five. They went through everything, absolutely everything. Uh, my partner's underwear drawer, the lot. Uh, and uh, they asked, do you have the documents? I said, yeah, well, they're down on my desk. So I took them down, gave them the documents. We got interviewed at my breakfast table. Um, and then they, and the copper actually said to me, uh, I said to him, look, do you often raid newspapers? This is uh, going to be a fairly big story. And he said, no, we didn't raid you. And I said, well, you didn't tell me you were coming. And he said, well, no, it's not a raid. I don't think it'll be a big issue at all. And I kind of looked at him and smiled and said, well, we'll see. And about two hours later, 
uh, when we gave the story to AAP, a news agency, it went around the world. And there's about 7,000 news stories filed on the issue in the next, in the following two weeks. It just is the busiest I've ever been in my life. But I was professionally uh, delighted and personally disgusted is the best way to put it. But it, it, it made uh, the National Indigenous Times and it certainly boosted my career. So... In hindsight, it was a wonderful thing. Raid me again, I say. So for all those people out there who are kind of, you know, thinking maybe they want to make it as an investigative just journalism, just, just do something that's going yeah. to make the police show up at your door oh. at 8.30 on a Saturday morning. <laughs> get raided. Yeah, or a sex tape. That's how Miley Cyrus did. Is it Miley Cyrus? No, well, no I'm look, showing my... No. <laughs> I don't know anything about her. She's been accused of many things, but I don't think that's one of them. All right, I don't even know if that's inappropriate. I don't even know how old she is, so there you go. 21, 22, something like that. Um, But look, going back to this whole was it a raid, was it not a raid kind of thing, what ended up happening there? It was a raid. (laughs) Uh, They had a warrant. Uh, I've still got a copy of it. Uh, They threatened to charge me with, um, I can't even remember, I think it was uh, receiving stolen property. Uh, It wasn't stolen, of course. They were photocopies of photocopies. But uh, in the end, they never charged me and they never... Though fundamentally, the reason why they raided me was to find the source of the leak. And but we go to enormous lengths to protect sources, and they never found the source of the leak. And I can nine years on, I can probably now finally reveal we gave them additional information. I think they thought we were being helpful. We were just trying to confuse the daylights out of them. So they had no chance of ever finding the source of the leak, particularly. Uh, not after all the extra stuff we piled on them. And and I subsequently uh, put a Freedom of Information request because we believed our phones had been tapped. And uh, as it turns out, the, they... As the, it turns out, everyone's phone is being well, tapped. Well, yeah, and ours ours was being tapped. Uh, and we were under surveillance, which they admitted through the FOI papers. So very strange part of my life. You've brought in a song called Bank Robber by The Clash. How appropriate. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's appropriate for a number of reasons. Well, yeah, A, because uh, there's coppers and a beautiful segue to bank robbers. But B, uh, I mentioned before about um, my family. This song reminds me of my dad, who I never actually met. Uh, he died a couple of uh, months before I made contact with my family. And when I tell people that story, they a lot of people think it's very sad. You know, you've just missed him. But as it turned out, it was quite uh, probably the right thing to happen because... I got to know my father's family, and he is an avowed redneck, an absolute unavowed racist, hated journalists, and uh, probably holds every view that I am diametrically opposed to. So I don't think we would have got along very well. So it's probably good that he went just before I turned up, I suspect. But this song, uh, the lyrics are, my daddy was a bank robber. And so it always reminds me of my dad. He wasn't a bank robber. He was a bouncer. But that, they're not that far removed, I would argue. <laughs> I'm sure that there are some bouncers who, who work at very respectable venues. Well, my dad was, at, who, yeah, dad was at the Rex that. Hotel at King's Cross. Not a respectable venue in this day, I'm told. <laughs> Let's have a listen to it right now. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio. This is The Clash.
What's on at FBI Social this week? After years of working together, musicians Emma Davis and Brian Campo have finally teamed up for a co-headline tour. Moving. They're playing FBI Social on Friday, November 8th with support from Annie McKinnon. Tickets are $10, doors are at 8 Get tickets and details at fbisocial.com. Yeah. 
the end of that one. Oh, that's a good idea. There's a lot of foul language. Oh, I meant to warn you. <laughs> Sorry. It's I- Chris Graham. He's my guest on Out of the Box today. We've been getting to know him a little bit over the last half an hour. And look, if you've just tuned in, you can always listen back to the program on demand. It's ondemand.fbiradio.com. Um, and you can also head to the programs and playlist page because we've just started podcasting on iTunes as well. So you can listen back to previous episodes. Now, Chris, you, there's a reason you've brought in most of the songs. They've got a, a story attached to them, but that one in particular? Oh, that one, I I used to, uh, again, train at ice hockey, but play, we used to come out to that song for a team I played at in Canberra. And, um, you know, if I had my life again, I would be an NHL superstar <laughs> on $87 million over 12 years playing for the New York Rangers. Uh Unlikely to happen, I admit. But I love ice hockey. And the reason I love ice hockey, A, is it's a great sport. But B, it's one of those sports if you don't focus, it's a bit like surfing. If you stop, if you start thinking of other stuff, you're going to get hurt. And uh, so it does force you to kind of switch off uh, from whatever. And I tend to get quite obsessed with work and I kind of live, eat and breathe it. And unfortunately, so do the people around me. They kind of get forced to as well. Uh, And, uh, you know... I talk. I wrote a feature about this. It was a feature called "The Awful Truth." And when you come to understand what Australia has done and what the impact on Aboriginal people is, it's a really horrible thing to find out. When you spend enough time around it, that you really start to understand the depth of trauma. Uh, and and so when I say I, if I had my time again, I'd be an NHL star. It's partly because hockey is awesome, but also because it would be nice to. Uh, not have to worry about or not have to know the things I know about our country and and feel as ashamed as I do about our country. It would be wonderful to be oblivious, I think. on Some, some days I wake up and think that'd be awesome. I'm glad I'm not and I love what I do. But, uh, yeah, I mean, when you really start to understand what we've done, it's a, it's a horrible realisation. And, and the longer you stick around it, the worse it gets because uh, you can see it's not changing. In many ways, it's getting worse. So in this alternate reality where you were an ice hockey star... Superstar. Superstar, not <laughs> just you. star, but superstar. There's a difference. Um, but what I'm kind of wondering is how does a self-confessed nerd, like the kid that was in the brass band <laughs> in high school... It's weird. To me, ice hockey is like the American almost meathead sport. It is, absolutely. It's a toothless meathead sport. Most and hockey players have no teeth. I still have all my teeth. but Good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess that aside from that not really fitting with my conception of you as a teenager also like it doesn't snow here no how did you get into ice hockey well it does snow in well in yeah <laughs> but not not enough to like freeze the lakes over that you can yeah, naturally right. just start playing hockey on them. that's right i've only ever skated outdoors once and that was in new zealand this year uh i used to go to canterbury ice rink uh four or five times a week uh i just became obsessed with skating and i was a rink rat before i was a hockey player and a, a rink, rink rat, rat. yeah, a rink rat is a is a kid who hangs around the rink. You've seen them if you've been at Canterbury Ice Rink. They get out on the rink and run around like an idiot and show off and carry on. And that was me and most of my friends. So. Man, I didn't realise that there was a because I I grew up in a coastal kind of surfing community right. and there were like the grommies, grommies which I yeah. assume is kind of the same thing. It as It is, a rink yeah, rat. it's a rink rat. Yeah, With- the young, uh, you know, hyped up kid who 
uh, shows off until he falls over and hurts himself, and then he slinks off and has a little cry when no one's watching. <laughs> That's the nerd in me. <laughs> um, and obviously, you somehow progressed from from being a rink rat to actually playing ice hockey. Yeah, I, I had a foster kid in Canberra, and uh, he was a really tough kid. Uh, and so I thought I'll get him into ice hockey, and uh, and I thought, well, I might play ice hockey too because I was a really good skater, but I didn't spend any time with the puck. So. Uh, it seems quite altruistic that I would get a foster kid into ice hockey, but if I were to be truly honest, it was about me getting into ice hockey as well. <laughs> uh, he loved it, and he went on to be very... He was a really good player. He top-scored in the in the Nationals for ACT. But um, I kind of... It, it just stuck on me, and I've since become... I've been obsessed with it for about 10 years now, so... Are you guys still in touch? Uh, yeah, yeah, we talk every now and then. He's uh, older now. He's about 21. Oh, no, he's 20. Uh and look, he his his potential was he'll never reach his potential, uh, and that's just unfortunately the reality of what happens with a lot of foster kids. But um, he, you know, he's a great kid and he's got an amazing spirit. But uh, you know, he does it tough a bit, I think. Because you were there. fostered yourself. I was, but my circumstances were quite different. I was fostered much, much younger. Uh, Dale was uh, nine when he came to us, but uh, I was a baby, uh, fostered legally at two and a half. So I had a very different uh, experience and a very stable upbringing in a very loving uh, family with three older brothers. So who, not my natural brothers, but so my experience was quite different. Your three brothers were they foster children as well? Or no, they were, they were all yeah. uh, all related, blood related. Yeah, but it, you know, it's um, people often ask me about fostering. Would I? Would I recommend it? And the answer is no, I wouldn't recommend it. It's very difficult and it can be emotionally quite, uh, you get quite wrought out of it. But um, I'm certainly glad I did it, but I, I don't think I'd do it again. But I, I, but I, I should say people should consider it if they have uh, the time and, and the space. And if they've got other kids too, It's it, we had no kids, so it was difficult but if you've got other kids peer support and peer pressure is a really powerful thing for young kids and if you put a foster kid in who's got some challenges in amongst a group of kids who are really solid and strong the, they, there, there tends to be a bit of a melding people think it will go the wrong way it usually doesn't the the kid will kind of meld into the family you've brought in a song by alexander Everett. yes play called truth can called you tell truth. us about this one Look, it's just a song I really like for the title, obviously. Um, and I live a very political life, so I'm constantly railing about this and that. Uh, at the moment, it's Tony Abbott. Prior to that, it was obviously Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard and Kevin Rudd. <laughs> uh, so I just like the song. I, uh, I, I just like the sound of it as well, but I like the, the lyrics. So I would like to dedicate it to Tony Abbott if he's listening, because I know he's quite a fan. Oh yeah, yeah. I, well, Not of me. So of far and out of the box today, <laughs> we've we've had a dedication to your partner. Oh, and yeah. And now we've got a, a dedication to Tony Abbott. Now this one, um, Alexander Abbott. If you're you're not familiar, he's actually the the front man from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And this one's from. I didn't from, know that. Oh well, there you go. No, that was that was, I was giving a bit of context for people who are listening. Um, but yeah, so he put out a solo album back in 2011. Ah, yeah. Let's have I, a listen to Truth. You were going to say something? Oh, I just love the song. A, a younger friend of mine uh, introduced me to it and uh, kind of stuck with me.
shadow And every day is trying to trick me into doing battle Calling out fake love, wanna get me rattled Wanna pull me back behind the fence with the cattle Building your lenses, digging your trenches Put me on the front line, leave me with a dumb mind With no defenses, but your defenses If you can't stand to feel the pain, then you are senseless Since there's a grown-up, some different kind of fighter And when the darkness comes, let it inside you Your darkness is shining My darkness is shining A million number doors on the horizon Now which is the future you're choosing Before you gon' die And I'll tell you about a secret I've been undermining Every little lie in this world Come from the body Say you're my love Say you're my home Till my chin back Slip my throat Take a bath in my blood Get to know me All out of my secrets All my enemies are turning Into my teachers Because Life's blind in no way Dividing what's yours or mine When everything's shining Your darkness is shining My darkness is shining Have faith in ourselves Yeah song by Alexander Ebbett. It's called Truth. Now, Alexander is the, the lead singer from Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. He put out a solo album a couple of years ago, which we've been having a listen to. You're listening to Out of the Box right now. We've got Chris Graham in the studio. We've been getting to know him over the last little while and having a listen to some of the songs that have either been important to you or just mm. that you've really loved. We had a text in on 0409-945-945 from Pete. He's wondering if Chris is on Twitter. We can confirm that you are on Twitter. I am. Fights with people. I have tweeted. (laughs) Is Chris G at Chris G at large if you want to go and find Chris on Twitter? 
Chris G at large, yeah. At large is a column that I write for Tracker Magazine. It's actually my number plates, which is about as nerdy as it gets. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, it's something like else other than nerdy. Personalised number plates are not really a nerd thing. They're kind of a bogan thing. <laughs> Well, I did grow up in the southwest, I mean, and I'm not yeah. denying my bogan roots. Getting getting this really interesting <laughs> picture of you as like the nerdy kid who was in the school band, but also played meathead ice hockey and yeah. has personalised number plates. Yeah, I know. I Chris I Graham, have who been are you? <laughs> I've been accused of schizophrenia in my past, but uh, I, I deny I have it, and so do I. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. At Large is a, a column that you're currently writing. Now, you were the former and founding editor of Tracker magazine, which mm. is where that column is based, and also the National Indigenous Times, but you're now working freelance. Yeah, I basically, as when I leave this studio, I'm off to Armidale for uh, four or five days, and I, I live literally in my car about half the year. I travel around. Uh, it's got a fridge, and I throw a swag out on the ground, and I've had it converted so I can run 20, 240 volt, and I just drive around and... Uh, write stories, take photos, and film film stuff. Uh, I've, I reckon I got the world's best job. If you like the bush, if you don't, it would be the world's worst job. Now, one of the films that you've been working on recently is coming out quite soon. Can you tell yeah, us about it, that? Yeah, uh, it debuts. It debuted in uh, or premiered in London yesterday. It's called Utopia. Uh, it's by John Pilger, who's a for those who don't know, he's a expat Australian journalist, probably Australia's most famous expat journalist. He was a UK journalist of the year twice, and he's regarded as one of the great Australian documentary filmmakers, if you like his work. If you hate his work, he's regarded as a race traitor and, and a filthy animal, which is how he's regarded by very many Australians. But by me, I was he was my childhood hero, basically. He wrote a, a book called Secret Country, which I read as a kid. And I'd always wanted to work with him, and I got the opportunity to work with him on Utopia. So I was the associate producer on it. We'll throw a link up on the program page. It's fbiradio.com. Go to programs and playlists out of the box. We've got a list of all the songs that Chris has brought into play and also links to a couple of things mm. that we've talked about, including that film, which comes out in Australia on January 26th. January 26th, my favourite not day of the year. <laughs> You've brought in a song that you like to play on January 26th. I do. I crank this up and I put it on repeat and I just keep playing it all day. It's called Anthem uh, by a group called The Titters, which is this group of uh, Koori women from Victoria who who just formed a band. Ruby Hunter, who was uh, Archie Roach's uh, since departed wife, uh, called them Titters. And Titters in the language, I think that's the Wadaran language, means sisters. And uh, the song Anthems is basically the ultimate middle finger uh, to Australians who think that we have an inclusive and uh, egalitarian fair-go-for-all society. Sing me an anthem, cos you don't know the words. Words are hard to remember when they mean nothing at all. To the heart who's still waiting for their voice to be heard. Don't sing me your anthem when your anthem's absurd.
song by the Titters that my guest on Out of the Box today likes to play every year on Australia Day. <laughs> Note that you're you're not one of the, the people that blasts Hottest 100 from the back of your ute on the beach somewhere. No, no. I, I call it uh, Invasion Day, but that's just a small point. <laughs> just just a, a minor point, which you... Um, well, yeah, Michael Mansell has recently yeah. decided to decline his nomination yeah. for Australian of the Year because he disagrees with the date of Australia Day. Yes, he's not the god, Michael Mansell, but he possibly is a god. That's my view of Michael. I think he's a guru. Conversation for another time, because we've got to wrap up on Out of the Box this week. Now, if you have just tuned in and you're interested in Chris Graham and what he does, um, he's a a freelance journalist and editor who's won a couple of Walkley Awards, but describes his career highlight as that time his house got raided by the federal police. Yay. Which, you know, I think most people would be like, hey, journalism, you want a Walkley, that's your career highlight. But No, not really. <laughs> having the police knock on your door. Yeah. Um, you can always head to the Programs and Playlists page and find Out of the Box. We're podcasting on iTunes now, so you can always listen back to previous episodes with people like Matt Ravier or Grant Morrison as well. Chris, thank you so much for coming in and sharing some that's music and stories today. I really enjoyed it. It's one of, I, I do a lot of radio, but I never get to play my own songs, so I loved it. <laughs> now, what are we going to go out on? Um, was it uh, Gathu Mawula or was it Brighter Than Gold? I think it's, it's completely up to you. Well, uh, Brighter Than Gold because it's – this This is Cat Empire, who I only recently discovered. I knew their song, uh, Hello, Hello, but I thought it was a bit gimmicky and what have you. But I saw these guys live at the Blues Fest and, uh, you know, the nerd in me loved them because, you know, they've got brass and they've got big band. So uh, it's a ska orchestra-style band. Uh, so I really, really fell in love with them and – Ended up downloading all their songs, but uh, they're not as good as they are live. But this particular song, uh, Bridal and Gold, is a new song they released, which I really love. 
I've got a friend who thinks that music isn't real music unless it features a brass section. Absolutely. That's an argument we can have another time. You won't have that argument with me, I agree. Beth Dalglish is up next with lunch. She's got Beastman and Askew coming in for a bit of a chat about Straight Out that's coming up at 2pm. Four steps in the morning, two steps in the day. Three steps in the evening and the darkness is ablaze and all the angels cease and soldiers come step to the parade. I run out like a cheetah, the monkeys in the blood. What a piece of work is man who screams the name of love, but all his brothers, cousins, sisters, and others hear his foes.